Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. The first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while. So now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the 23rd episode of Risk ever to be heard. It premiered in August of 2010, and it's called Revenge. Drive across the bridge, no matter what they say. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Arms up top. Sean Lee is behind me now. And on this episode, vengeance is ours. Today, true tales will be boldly told on the ugliest of subjects, revenge. But we'll start with the loveliest of ladies, Ms. Glennis McMurray. Glennis co-hosts the amazing show Dream Roll here in New York. We call her story Witchy Woman. So to this day, I cannot listen to Meatloaf's I Would Do Anything for Love, but I won't do that without wanting to vomit. It reminds me of my freshman year of high school when I lived in Boone, North Carolina, AKA the worst year of my life. (laughs) My mother moved me and my sister there um, from Durango, Colorado, where I grew up, because our grandfather had passed away and we needed to help take care of my grandmother. When I knew I was moving there, I was really excited. I was like, okay, I'm gonna be amazing when I go there. I'm gonna walk in the school, they're gonna ask me to sing, and I'm gonna be the star of the school, and I'm gonna be the most popular girl. (laughs) Everybody's gonna hang out with me, and it's gonna be amazing. It didn't really happen that way. Um, It was one of the bleakest, darkest winters of my life. I had one friend in school, and she constantly talked about wanting to get shot in the stomach so she could lose weight. 
And we were really broke. Uh, my mom was raising my sister and I on a hairdresser's salary, so we sometimes didn't even have money for food. And we had no money for cable TV or anything, any luxuries like that, and we lived way out of town. So all I did was listen to the radio, night and day, and sometimes you have to listen to 12 minutes of meatloaf to get to Ace of Base. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so I... I got to the point where I was like, I kind of actually do want to get shot in the stomach, so I need to leave. And I asked my dad, who still lived in Durango, Colorado, if I could move in with him. Now, my dad and I weren't that close. Um, my parents got divorced when I was eight, and he had married, ironically, the babysitter. <laughs> and she and I, her name was Sandra, which is an evil name, and I'm sorry if you have that name, but I hate you. <laughs> Sandra never liked me. Um, when I was younger, I remember standing in their house. I was spending the night. I said, Dad, can I take my bike to school? He said, sure. And then he left. And then Sandra said, no, you can't take your bike to school. You can't ride your bike. Your bike. And I was like, but he just, no, I'm in charge. When I was in middle school, my sister and I spent a weekend there. And she planted a piece of bubble gum in the pantry. It was an all-healthy pantry, all-health food. She put a piece of bubble gum in the pantry, and then when I took it and chewed it because it was in the pantry, she threatened to beat us with a wooden spoon. Um, and I think the worst thing above all, all of that was that she wouldn't allow us to say my mother's name in the house. She was an evil woman. She was awful, but Boone was worse. <laughs> So I moved back to Durango, Colorado. And it actually wasn't that bad. I lived with my dad and Sandra, and I like, stayed out of her way. I didn't say my mother's name. And it was fine. For a year, it was fine. And then one weekend, my father went out of town, uncharacteristically, without Sandra attached to his hip. And so she was in charge. And I was like, perfect. I'm going to lie to her and tell her that I'm going to spend the night at my best friend Lauren's house, but what we're really going to do is we're going to go to Hot Brett's party and we're going to stay out all night long. <laughs> it was really exciting. Um, and that's what I did. I told her I went to Lauren's house and we went to the party and it was the best night ever. We um, drank around a campfire. We got busted by the cops and had to run through the woods. <laughs> we stayed up all night long. Hot Brett played his drums. It was amazing. <laughs> And then the next morning, me, theater nerd Glennis, got to go to breakfast at the Village Inn, which is like a Denny's on the West Coast, um, with like 15 guys from like Hot Brett's friends. I was like, oh my God, this is the best night of my life. So we're sitting at breakfast, and my best friend Lauren goes to call her sister to check in. Less than a minute later, she's frantically beckoning me over to the phone, and I was like, oh God, my heart sank. I immediately, bless you, I immediately knew there was no reason I needed to talk to her sister unless we had been caught. So I go over to the phone and her sister says, your dad's called three times this morning, he's looking for you. And I was like, oh God, and my heart sank even further. I called my dad and he said, where are you? And my dad is mild mannered, he never gets angry. I don't remember him ever getting angry. And I was, I, I felt awful, I really did feel awful. So I said, I'm at the Village Inn with Tamara and her grandparents. That's where we spent the night last night, with Tamara and her grandparents. <laughs> and he said, I'm coming to get you, and hung up the phone. And 10 seconds later, he transported through anger. He was there. And I was like, hi, Dad. And he said, go get Tamara and her grandparents. And I was like, nope. Okay. 
And I walked in hoping that the table of 15 guys would magically transform into two old Mexicans, but they didn't. <laughs> My dad said, get in the car. And I got in the car and he drove me home and he didn't talk to me the whole way. And when we got home, he said, go into your room. And I was like, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I was up all night. So I really did feel awful. I didn't feel awful about having the best night of my life, but I felt awful about lying and um, getting caught. So I, you know, as I thought about that and I thought about the amazing night that I just had, I uh, drifted off to sleep. I was awoken by the sound of my bedroom door flying open and a banshee flying into my room going, where were you last night? Where were you? And I hung over, sleeping, dead asleep. And I was like, what, what? Where were you? Who did you sleep with? And I was like, hold the phone, what now? Where was I? Fine. Who did I sleep with? What? 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 What does that have to do with it? So I'm still kind of trying to figure out what's going on. Obviously, it's Sandra. I've figured that out. And uh, I'm starting to answer her, and she goes, sit up. And I started to sit up, and she pulls me by my hair and rips me out of bed. And I'm like, ah, no touching. And I sit up in bed, and I look at her, and she's like, you lied to me. You made me look like a fool in front of your father. If you ever lie to me again, and she gets this close to my face and clenches her fist, and she says, if you ever lie to me again, I will punch a hole in your face. <laughs> I know. And I had to stop myself from laughing because as scared as I was, holy balls, that's hilarious. <laughs> a little overdramatic, are we? So I stopped myself from laughing and I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I lied to you, I'm really sorry. Mind you, I'm 16 at this point. She's a you know, 45 year old woman and kind of muscular, kind of manly face. And um, so she turns around and starts to walk out the door and before I can even let my breath out, she turns on her feet and smacks me across the face as hard as she can. And I just was in shock. Nobody had ever hit me in my life, ever especially not her, this woman who had tormented me my entire life, who had hated me my entire life. She finally had a reason, an excuse. I had done something so that she could hit me. And as she walked out the door, I saw my father walk past my bedroom door and I was like, ah, he's in on it too, the whole world hates me. But a year later, my father found, I had written this story out um, in creative writing class and he had found it. And he divorced Sandra. Yes, yes. And I don't think it was because of that, but I do think that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And after I moved to New York, I would hear from my mother that people, I mean, Durango is a small town. Nobody here has been there. And, um, <laughs> and I would hear from my mother that she was, Sandra was bad-mouthing me all over town, saying I was a slut. I don't understand the fascination with my sex life. Saying I did drugs, I was a loser, all this stuff. And I was like, why do you hate me so much? So... The divorce was a good revenge, but the real revenge is that I live an awesome life and she'll always be a bitch.
to see me, stepmother? Well, if it isn't Cinderella freshly back from the sex jungle. Uh, excuse me? I was just in the kitchen cleaning. Oh, I just assumed you were over at your boyfriend's house in some sort of sex jungle. Um, I don't really have a boyfriend. Well, have a see, why don't you? Try not to leave a mark. A mark on the seat? Why, is there a marker on my pants or something? Do I, well, I don't know if it's marker. I don't know if marker comes in clear and smelly. Oh, um, okay. Maybe I should just get back to the kitchen and start, um, you know, sweeping up? Well, I just came home early so we could get to know each other. Spend a little oh, girl nice. on girl time. That is so nice. A little ATM, a little ass to mouth. That's what you're oh, into, um, What? All the boys like it, don't they? Um, I've never really received a compliment from a boy. What have you received other than a big fat cock up your anus? I'm not quite sure what that even entails. You like fat guys, don't you? Kind of. You like to spread them out and lick their asses. Okay, I, like, I just like fat guys. I don't like to do any of the other stuff. Do you like uh, the way they smell when they get all sweaty and you fuck them with a big fat black dildo? Let me put it to you this way. Uh-huh. At midnight, when I turn into a pumpkin, mm-hmm. if I were you, I'd turn into an ass and I'd be getting a big fat cock shoved up me. Is that Was that a good metaphor? Um, On your Facebook profile, under likes and dislikes for food, does it say cock or pizza? Well, it's it says cock. It says pizza. It says cock. It says pizza. It says cock. Well, you can clearly cock. tell me the truth. Well, when never, you're grabbing a big slap, I've never seen a man's cake. penis. I've never seen a man's penis. Oh, that's because you always take it from behind. Well, no, I... I just think you, I want to do it like a boy. I want to do it like a boy. I don't even know what that means. Well, you want to take it up the butt like a little sailor, man. You know, frogs can do that. Oh, they can? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go get a frog right now. A bit. Shove it up your ass. Nathan Phillips and Joe Shappa there, keeping it classy. They're at NathanAndJoe.com. Well, David Crabb hosts the show Ask Me in the East Village, and he helps us produce this show, the one bouncing around your brain right now. Here's David with a little something we call The Scoop. Roxanne was my best friend when I was 16. She was 20. So she was kind of that first older friend you have that gets you into like adult trouble instead of teen trouble. Roxanne was one of the funniest people that I had ever known. And a lot of her humor was pretty rude. She cut down everyone, sometimes to their faces and sometimes behind their back. But it was always really clever and hilarious and witty the way she did it. So you kind of put up with this meanness. Oh no, I just saw her. Oh girl, she looked like some kind of white trash rag doll with her hair like that. (laughs) I said, next girl. (laughs) Roxanne possessed this natural beauty. She had this beautiful alabaster skin, these really long eyelashes. Roxanne managed to take all of this natural beauty and turn it into something terrifying. She did this mostly with the help of her gay friends. They treated her like one of those bunnies that you see in a PETA ad with like a shaven back. She had a very specific fashion MO. She would wear sort of layers and layers of black sort of draping crepe-like material. She would wear the palest foundation you've ever seen and it would make her look like she had this really tan neck 
she dyed her hair this crazy sort of reddish purplish color it was like literally iridescent in different light one time i finally asked her i said roxanne what color is your hair and she said girl it's called eggplant i said oh okay um one night i went over to roxanne's at that point she was living with our friend robert and her cat voltaire not named after the author but i think the industrial band cabaret voltaire We were hanging out, Robert and me, the cat, and a couple friends, and we were waiting for Roxanne to get ready so we could go out. An hour goes by, two hours go by. We figure what she's probably doing is this thing where, see, Roxanne shoplifted, but what she shoplifted were the labels from high-end clothing. She'd go into a store with a little pair of scissors and get all these, like, Chanel tags, and then she would affix those tags to whatever sort of Target Walmart clothing that she refashioned to look high-end. It's kind of brilliant, really. Anyway, so the clock is ticking. We're all hanging out. We got stuck in one of those loops where you're watching MTV True Lives back to back to back. And at this point, we're smoking weed, we're drinking. We're really, really engrossed in this MTV True Life about a small Amish town that gets decimated by crystal meth. You know, a fun night in with friends. So finally, when Roxanne comes out and she's like, I'm ready to go, bitches, we look at her and we're kind of like, Roxanne, we're having a fun time. We just kind of want to stay in and hang out. Well, this pissed off Roxanne, and she started just zooming around the house, angrily slamming cupboards and going into her room and sighing and calling someone on the phone and bitching about us so we could hear her and then slamming the phone down. And she was especially mad at me because I kind of led the charge in not going out, which I typically didn't do to her. I typically didn't stand up to Roxanne. So we're hanging out, and eventually she kind of comes around. She goes and she gets her cat, Voltaire, and she sits in the living room with us and starts watching TV. We continue to drink and hang out, and... I remember that Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, Good Vibrations, was playing as I slowly blacked out. And I was sitting sideways in this chair so that, you know, my my legs were thrown over one arm. And then my neck was over the other with my head kind of hanging back. I don't know how long I was passed out when all of a sudden I woke up and I had this weird sensation in my mouth. So I spit. And I looked around and I was alone in the room with the TV on. And I said, hello? And all I heard from another room somewhere in the house was... All of a sudden, I got the most disgusting taste in my mouth, and I ran to the bathroom, and I spit in the sink, and I looked, and my spit was brown. I had this weird feeling in my gums, and I I put my finger in my mouth, and I dug around, and I pulled out, like, these little, like, blue and green sort of crystals. Right as I realized what it was, I looked over my shoulder in the mirror, and there was Roxanne slapping her knee. (laughs) Girl! You just ate cat shit. I freaked out. I slammed the bathroom door, and I tried to make myself get sick, and I couldn't. I knew I had to get out of there. I opened the door, and I barged past her, and I just pushed her against the wall. And at that moment, I think she realized I was really, really pissed that she had really crossed the line. So she tried to get me to stop. She was saying, girl, you're too drunk. You can't drive. Please don't leave. I'm so sorry. I just got drunk. and Things got out of hand. I pushed my way past her, and I went outside. I'm going through my keys to unlock the car, and I'm seeing double of everything. And she comes up behind me, and she's begging, Please, girl, don't leave. I'm so sorry. And I'll always remember I turned to her, and really dramatically, I said, You know, those Amish crystal meth addicts would make better friends than you. And I opened the car door, and I got in it, and I started it, and I pulled out of the driveway. 
I got to the end of the block and I was literally trying to refocus my eyes to not see two of everything, two traffic lights, two stop signs, two mailboxes. I turned the corner and I saw a gas station and I stopped and I went inside. I had to get the flavor out of my mouth. So I walked into the gas station and I went to the candy aisle and I stood there with my stomach churning looking at all this candy and I saw this box of raisinets and something about the way the raisinets looked all like smashed up against that little plastic window in the box made me puke and I vomited right there in the aisle in the gas station. So I walk outside and I realize I cannot get home. I'm too messed up. So I go to the payphone and I call Roxanne. David, is this you? Oh my God, I'm so sorry, Crab. I didn't mean to do that. I just got drunk. Things got out of hand. Please come back. And I said, Roxanne, first, we're not friends anymore. Second, I freaking hate you. And third, I have to come back there to go to sleep because I can't get home. So she said, please come back, just come back, girl. I just don't want you to be in an accident. So I got in my car, and I drove back to Roxanne's. And I opened the door, and immediately she was there saying, you can go to the end of the hall, you can sleep in my room, and you can lock the door, and I'll sleep on the couch. I'm so sorry. So I go down the hallway, and I open her door, and I slam it, and I lay in her bed. I want to go to sleep. I know I need to go to sleep. And I just keep thinking about what has been done to me. I have to get her back. So I drunkenly stumble from her bedroom down the hall. It's morning. The sun is just starting to come up. I go into the bathroom and I reach down into Voltaire's litter box with a napkin. And I pick up a little kitty turd. And then I walk into the living room. I can see on the couch that Roxanne is asleep on her side with her back to me. And there's just enough sunlight starting to pour in that I can make the scene out. I look down on the floor by the couch, and her journal is laying there, and it's open. It says at the top of this page, David. And I kneel over it, and I realize it is a letter to me that she had been writing. And the letter is basically her apologizing, but it's also a letter about our friendship and how much she cares about me and how sorry she is that sometimes she gets out of hand and behaves the way she does. And I read the letter, and I'm standing there holding this cat poop, thinking, is this really going to make me feel any better? Because really, think about it, like, how trusting is this friend of mine? I imagine that I had just done something like that to someone, and then I would let them back in my house, and she loves me enough and trusts me enough to just assume that I won't do the very thing that I'm about to do, which is take revenge in this horrible, disgusting way by feeding her cat shit. Right as I'm thinking all of this, she rolls over towards me in her sleep, and across her mouth are like 20 band-aids, like big, thick, bacon slab kind of band-aids that are crisscrossed around her mouth like a star, like a seal around her mouth. My loving, trusting friend. Obviously, I didn't get to take my revenge, uh, which is probably for the best. And not long after I decided to tell the story and I reached out to Roxanne, I got a message back from her. And I was expecting that the message might say something like, Oh, you can't tell that story, girl. Like, I've got a family now. I've changed. Or, oh, you just don't remember it all right. That was a Hershey's kiss I fed you. But instead, in typical Roxanne fashion, all it said in reply to my message was one sentence. What's up, kitten poop breath? Oh, girl, you've done me so wrong. 
but you about to get your C. Oh girl, you done me wrong. I guess you done me wrong in so many ways. There was that one time you did me wrong, and the other time you did me wrong. But also there was that there were a lot of times. But it's time to take my revenge. Yeah, I'ma put poop in your pocketbook. Time to take my revenge. Yeah, I'ma drop a deuce in your clutch. You'll be like getting ready to go out on something, and you'll be like, hold on, I've got to get my chapstick. So you go inside your purse and open it up. <laughs> yeah, baby, that's my duty. This is risk. That was Dan Rosen adding to the scatological quotient for today's show. He's at Facebook.com/slash Dan Rosen Music. Well, Carrie Heidecker is now a hard-working actress, but she was once a hard-working Macy's clerk. Here she is at the Risk Live show. We call this one Footsie. So the story that I'm going to tell you tonight is actually dealing with a job that I had, which was horrendous. It's actually working selling shoes at Macy's, um, which is a terrible place and you should never go there. Uh, And so (laughs) what I did, I sold women's shoes. And so the thing that was weird about working at Macy's is that actually the people who were there were all lifers except for me. And so like their entire life revolved around like building shoes into pyramids, helping clients with customer service and trying to be like friendly and nice. And so, you know, it was a difficult fit for me like right at the start, but I kind of started getting into it except that I always had the problem customers. Someone would come in and they would ask for like, 13 pairs of shoes. I would run and get them. And then I would come back and the person would have run away. And I would just be there forlorn, like with stacks of shoes crying. Um, And so I never made commission. I was like the lamest sales girl in the world. I never actually made any money. And so the thing that was kind of horrific also about the job is that the stock room was four floors tall. And so that seems like, okay, fine. If you've worked retail, you understand that that's true. Except that they were organized by color, which is beastly. Like before you sell shoes, you never actually realize that like when you send somebody back with a shoe and you think they're going like to Brazil for it, like they really are because they're running up and down the stairs like a maniac. And so people would say, oh, I want, you know, to see this shoe in black and purple and orange. And like you would go back and be run. Of course, black was like the fourth floor, you know, like, because that's not a common shoe color. Uh, And so you'd be running up and down the stairs like an idiot to see, because the person would try on the same shoe in all these colors. So... I was really kind of starting to get frustrated because you would get, if you worked at Macy's for a while and you really were like an exemplary sales girl, you would get this badge and it was, you you had a badge, but you would get this star for your badge. It was probably about this big. It was gold and it was like called exemplary service star or something. Naturally, I never had one, but everyone else had one because their whole life revolved around getting this star. So I started to think to myself, like, I really think I want this. Like, how do I get the star. I talked with my boss, whose name was George. He was like this maybe 65-year-old guy whose life revolved around shoes. And so he was like, the thing you need to do, Carrie, to get the star is cultivate a kind heart. He's like, you don't have one and you need to cultivate it and then you will be able to get the star. And I was like, okay, I can do it. You know, I will do it. So 
One day, my boss is actually off, and I'm there, and I'm working, I'm trying my best, you know, and usually, like, on an average day, you would get the person who would come in, oh, only I would get this person, person would come in, and they would say, like, I need to show you, um, I have a toe abnormality, I have three toes, and they're glued together, you know, and they'd, like, whip off their shoe and show this to you, and so, you know, after a few of those toe malformations, you know, all of this sorts of thing, my day was kind of slow, I was just like, all right, am I ever going to get a sale. I see this woman. She wheels onto the floor in a wheelchair. She's with her husband. She's probably about, I don't know, in her late 60s, early 70s. And she comes on. Her husband is also kind of like nondescript. He just is there. uh, Completely useless in every way. And the woman is sitting there and she has a knitted purple afghan over her legs. And she just looks like someone's grandmother. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Here is the chance that I have to show I can be kind. I can be good to someone's grandmother. So I went over and I said, you know, can I help you? Which, you know, was something that I often didn't really say, but I tried to be helpful. And the woman said, yes, I'm, I'm trying to match a dress. Usually, this would have given me pause. I do not like to help people match dresses. It's appalling. But no, I said, oh my gosh, let me help you. Of course, the dress was plaid, so it only had 72 colors in it. Uh, So the woman said, you know, I want to see this. I want to see this. She was picking up different shoes. I want to see it in a heel. And how about that? And I said, great. So I went back and, you know, I'm trudging up the four floors, getting the shoe box that she wants, coming down. And no sooner do I come down, I think maybe she's run away. I mean, how fast could she run? Um, She's there by the stock room door waiting with another pair. Okay, give her the shoebox, turn around, back up, trudging up the steps I go. This happens, I'm not joking, 18 times. So by the 18th pair, I'm like over it. I'm like, okay, this is frustrating. But I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I'm going to help this woman. I'm going to get the star. This is awesome. I'm being kind. So I go back to the woman And I said to the woman, why don't we try some of these on, you know, for a change? The woman's like, okay, you know, but I don't like to touch my own feet. This is not unusual. There were actually a lot of people who don't like to touch their own. It's kind of freakish. Uh, But I said, okay, you know, that's what I'm here for. I love touching feet. It's my job. Um, So I got down on the floor, and the woman was there, and I opened up the shoebox to start with the first pair of shoes for her. And with that... She whisked off the afghan and went, ha ha, no legs! And the woman had no legs from mid-thigh down. I've spent 30 minutes with her. I've lost commission. I've sweated. I've been disgusting. I've run up and down like a maniac. No legs. So I'm in horror. Her husband and she laughing hysterically. They're like, this is great. Ah, you know, terrific. Um, so I said to her, this is really strange. I'm a little bit bitter. I'm a little angry. And the woman goes, the best thing about you is we've done this to eight girls in Bloomingdale's, Neiman's, Nordstrom's. And like none of them were as gullible as you were. And they all caught on sooner, but you never did. And I said, oh, well, you know, because that's a weird leap in logic to come in to buy shoes and you assume they have feet. It's not a strange job. Um, so <laughs> I was getting more and more bitter 
uh, as I sat there. And then the woman just laughed hysterically, she and her husband, and then just rolled out the door as they would. And so this was their little jaunt, I guess. I really have no idea why they did this to me. Uh, it was just a little bit tormenting. So the ha- hilarity of the story comes the next day when I go back into work and my boss calls me in and he says, I hear there's been something terrible that happened yesterday to you. And I said, you have no idea. <laughs> you can't even imagine. And he said, yeah, um, but th- the thing is, I love your attitude. I've heard that you tried to sell shoes to someone who didn't even have feet. You are such a good person. If that isn't a go-getter spirit, if that isn't what we want to see on the Macy's selling floor, I don't know what is. That is a true motivated sales clerk. And I'll have you know, I got my gold star. Monroe Crossing there with a great old song. I think Woody Guthrie used to do that one. Here's another American hero of sorts. Iraq vet Matt Gallagher is the author of the highly acclaimed memoir, Kaboom! Embracing the Suck in a Savage Little War. Here's the story behind that story. So we too call it Kaboom! In late 2007, I was a young lieutenant serving as a scout platoon leader in northwest Baghdad, and I was keeping a blog irreverently called Kaboom, kind of a campish reference to roadside bombs. And uh, so I've been keeping that on and off to keep friends and family entertained. Other soldiers were reading it as well. They enjoyed seeing my perspective of what the missions we were doing. Our experiences ran the gamut, and my blog posts reflected that accordingly. Sometimes they were really funny. One of the local power brokers, he wanted to meet with us, nicknamed Shake Banana Hands. He had the longest fingers I've ever seen. You shake his hand, his fingers were creeping up your elbows. It was weird. So we went over there thinking this was going to be kind of a serious meeting. Instead, he was sitting in his pajamas watching Thighmaster videos with Suzanne Summers. He waved us in. He told me to be quiet. He's like, only a couple minutes, only a couple more minutes. So we sat there watching it. And then, you know, I was 24 at the time, he turned to me and lectured me about the importance of finding an older woman to be a lover with. You will learn very much, he explained to me. Sometimes they were not so funny, going after an insurgent and finding a brothel, which was run by a mother of a 16-year-old girl. Other times it was kind of a mix of the two. 
we were running a counter IED patrols, which is nothing more than kind of driving up and down a freeway, hoping to catch an IED in place during the act. We got a call from farther down the highway that a convoy had come to a stop because they reported a possible IED. We drove down there and dismounted and kind of started looking for any signs, couldn't find anything. And then we kind of saw a small box with what looked to be a wire leading away from it. At that point, you're kind of supposed to back off and call in the, the bomb guys. We call them EOD, kind of like the Hurt Locker guys, so they can take it apart. But right when we were walking away, prepared to do that, I looked down, and the, the glint just wasn't right for a wire. So I kind of creeped up on it, and what originally looked like wire, I picked it up in my hand, and it was spool from a cassette tape. I wound my way up to what we thought was the actual bomb, and it was a broken cassette tape of Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. The soldiers immediately started singing, wanted dead or alive. Kind of one of those possibly morbid, suddenly hilarious moments. I was over there for the first nine months with the same platoon. So it was 20 guys, and we knew each other pretty intimately, living together 24-7 in a combat zone. You get to know people's personalities and all their deepest, darkest secrets. About six months in, my battalion commander is nicknamed Lieutenant Colonel Larry after the Three Stooges character. Called me to his office and told me that he wanted to promote me to kind of a staff position back in the rear. Lieutenant Colonel Larry was not a very physically imposing man, though neither am I. And he also had a very soft voice that kind of resembled the pitch of a seventh grade girl. Kind of talked like this. And when he chewed you out, he'd be like, Lieutenant Gallagher, what the fuck is wrong with you? Get your ass over here. It was very grating. And in its own bizarre way, it did inspire fear. So I will give credit where credit is due. We didn't really see eye to eye very much. Lieutenant Colonel Larry, in my estimation, was very traditional in his thinking and his planning. For example, we went on a raid one night to get an insurgent, and he had us round up the entire village of young males, which is pretty much in direct violation of one of the core principles of counterinsurgency, which is precision targeting. Other examples were draconian obsession with PowerPoint presentations. I can't tell you how many hours I spent slaving away on PowerPoint presentations rather than actually out there engaging the Iraqis and, and trying to build the villages and, and chase down insurgents, which was, in theory, why we were over there. So uh, he called me into his office. Lieutenant Gallagher, I'm going to make you the exile. Just expecting that I'd salute and move out. I stated my case, I thought, rather calmly. Sir, that's great, but you should know that I'm not planning on making the, the Army a career. Don't you think this should go to one of the other lieutenants who's planning on staying in? I valued my time in the service and was appreciative of it, but I decided that I wasn't going to make a military career. Also, selfishly, I wanted to stay with my soldiers. They were my best friends. I didn't think I was going to win this case, but I was going to go down swinging. It is an important job. It's usually given, however, to young officers who are going to make the Army a career. He put me at attention and... Uh, don't be a piece of shit, something to that effect. That went on for about five or ten minutes, and you just sit there and take it. But it stoked my Irish temper for sure. Me staying in attention, staring at a wall, being called all, all kinds of terrible, nasty things. So I went back, and I did the same thing I'd done the previous six months, and I blogged about it. It maybe wasn't the most well-written thing I've ever put together, but it, it was certainly uh, the most authentic. It was kind of a juxtaposition of what he was saying to me and what I was saying back to him, juxtaposed with my stream of conscious thoughts at the time, which were far more forthcoming and candid. I was saying, yes, sir, but I was thinking, what the fuck are you thinking? It was pretty rambling, but it was honest. 
for the first six months the blog was active, the military was actually pretty supportive. I had taken great care of not violating any operational security. I would given everybody nicknames. I wasn't giving out specific mission details. I got emails from people in the Pentagon who said this was a great tool. It was giving you know, the American people a window into what you guys are actually doing. At the time, I didn't really think that the blog post would get back to him. It was very naive on my part, given the nature of the Internet. He had read the piece, and he called me to his office, and he called me a motherfucker and shut my blog down, which was totally in his right to do. It wasn't until I kind of crossed that line of mocking Lieutenant Colonel Larry in print or in digital print that people got upset, and that's when it got shut down. A lot of times people think it was a big brother thing, the government holding the voice down. It was really nothing more than middle management. It was in his power to shut me down, so he did. However, after he got shut down, a lot of my readership got upset and wrote their congressman. Something like 20 or so congressional inquiries into the matter. I had a JAG, a military lawyer captain, call me and say that it had been shut down under false pretenses because I hadn't violated any operational security and we should fight it. I chose not to because I didn't want it to be another distraction. But this was getting some steam. It really kind of culminated when the Washington Post did an article on the rise and fall of Kaboom, the blog, which portrayed me in a very, very positive light. My parents talked to the reporter. I didn't. I didn't fight it, given the way they portrayed me, for sure. That led to a book deal. And I'm uh, starting grad school in the fall uh, for uh, Middle Eastern Studies. Frankly, uh, him shutting down my blog was probably the best thing that happened to me. things up for us. This has been Risk. And remember what this bearded wonder once said about Risk? My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. I'm not sure where